0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any organization. The participants are expressing their personal opinions and perspectives. This is episode 170. I'm Tommy Serafinski and this is the Conservation and Science Podcast, where we dive into the topics of ecology, conservation and human-wildlife conflict. I always strive to bring you diverse perspectives on every environmental story, examining their ecological, social, and political aspects. In this episode, we talk about the EU Biodiversity Strategy 2030. And our guest is Frank Vassen, who is a policy officer in the Nature Conservation Unit at European Commission. And you might think that this is going to be a very dry episode. We're going to talk about policy and politics. Nothing further from the truth. It was actually very enjoyable and uh, joyful, funny even conversation. We, we laughed with Frank many times at, uh, at things. What things? You'll need to listen to the episode to find out. Um, Frank has a deep knowledge and deep understanding of how nature conservation and how nature restoration works and how to achieve that through the policy. And we obviously talk about all the challenges as well and the outlook for the future. In this episode, you will also learn about what is the actual status of nature and nature conservation in the European Union, as well as we're going to decipher uh, some of the acronyms, some of the um, names that you hear, Natura 2000 sites or OECMs or Habitats Directive, etc. Uh, etc. Et so uh, there we're going to uh, bring a little bit of clarity into those things as well. Uh, we're also going to talk about the EU biodiversity plan. Not to confuse that with EU biodiversity law. Like that thing deserves the podcast on its own. And I'm obviously working on it. And if you want to help me uh, working on that podcast, you can always buy me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors. The link is in the description of the show. There's a lot of links in the description of the show, including to my newsletter. So go in there and, uh, you know, click on all of them. Um, anyway... For now, that's it for this introduction, and now we're going to talk about EU Biodiversity Strategy 2030 with Frank Vassen. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tommy. Glad to have you. And I am really keen to talk with you about all the um things related to nature restoration and protection in EU. But before we start, you know, I'm I'm really eager to jump right into it, but before we start, can you tell us what is the status of nature in in the EU, I know that there are these these nature report plans. There was one was twenty nineteen, I think. Then the in twenty twenty was the one that was date 2013, 2018. So, so it's like, okay, but but uh, you you know you can dive into those reports or not depending on you. I'm more keen on uh, hearing like what is like in general in your view state of nature.
1: Okay, well actually we get a report from each member state every six years under the Birds and Habitats Directive. And these reports, they provide information for the status and trends of all the protected species under the Birds and Habitats Directive, which means all the bird species and a certain number of species that are listed in the annexes of a Habitats Directive and then also uh, a number of habitats. And the last report was from 2019 it covered the period from 2013 to 2018 uh, to, uh, so a six year period. The next one is due in 25 uh, so we'll see uh, what the evolution is. But overall um, I think you have to look at uh, two issues the, the status and the trends. Uh. The status is where are we? and in the in the habitats directive we look very much at how far are we from the target of favorable conservation status. What is the distance? How much we still need to do to achieve a good conservation status? And overall, we see that when you look at well, the big big species, a a lot of bird species, for example, are amongst the raptors, for example, have had positive trends over uh, the last decades. Forest habitats and species are also generally doing quite okay. But then we have a whole group of species and habitats that is in a, in a bad conservation status and unfortunately very often still further declining. And these are very often the ones that are linked to open habitats or ground nesting birds. Ground nesting birds as a group is probably the worst group uh, in terms of status and trends in the EU. Uh, freshwater fishes, uh, amphibians are not doing well so we see a number of trends and it's it's not always easy to uh let's say to group them but overall it's clear that um everything that's related to open habitats open ecosystems freshwater wetlands uh, is generally uh, doing much worse than uh, what is related to forests
0: why is that
1: well that's a good question i think if you look at the forests uh we are Historically, Europe had uh, a forest minimum in the 18th century. Huh? There a, lot of, I mean, a lot of area in Europe was deforested. And since that time, there has been a recovery. And that recovery has continued over the last decades. Actually, there was a, apparently, there was a kind of break in the Second World War because everybody was using firewood. And then uh, the forest growth uh, recovered again. And I can't remember the exact figures, but I think there is still a, 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 an increase of a forest coverage in Europe every year. And this is a continuous trend for the last 100 years. And also in the last years, you see there's more and more deadwood in the, for, in, the, in the forests because a lot of trees have come to maturity. Of course, it doesn't mean that everything's going well in the forests. We, we still see that some primary and old growth forests are being cut down. And that's nevertheless a tragedy because these are often the last, uh, you know, places where some extremely uh, rare or endangered species occur. I think about deadwood beetles, etc. And so, while the overall trend is is positive, and while we see, for example, a recovery uh, even in the woodpeckers, the owls, and all these forest species, you also see some some negative trends when it comes to the, really the most interesting uh forests remnants let's say the old growth forests or the last primary forests in europe it's not all good in forests you also have uh, let's say the ground nesting forest birds also not also always doing well i think about the grouse species for example or or species that are linked to to semi-open forests uh, some disturbed kind of forests uh, the forest with a lot of sunlight uh, or certain Let's say they depend on certain traditional management practices. Unfortunately, we have recently lost um, the subspecies of a hazel grouse in Europe, uh, which was, let's say, which was endemic to to west central Europe, and that was linked to coppice forests uh, or very open uh, shrubby lands. But again, it's a ground nester, uh, so predation seems to have played a role there. And then, when it comes to the open habitats, of course. Um, they are increasingly squeezed between, on one hand, uh, let's say land abandonment, because we have some important parts of Europe where the land abandonment is prevailing and where traditional agricultural practices, grazing, hay making, so are disappearing. And on the other hand, all the intensification that we see in many parts of Europe, because agriculture is becoming increasingly modern, technological um, the machines are getting bigger. You know, the, the individual farm holdings are getting bigger. The hedges disappear. Uh, the countryside is getting more monotonous, and and also the nutrient overload that you see in these habitats uh, is one of the main causes of, uh, bio, of the biodiversity crisis. Because a lot of plant species depend on nutrient poor soils, but nevertheless on an active management, and that's something that is becoming almost. Uh, Yeah, uh, it's not compatible anymore with, you know, with the perception of what is modern agriculture. And yeah, while agricultural practices in the past were basically creating biodiversity as a side product, it's not the case anymore. Uh, This is unfortunately something that is a a reality. And if you want to protect, if you want to maintain all these extremely rich uh, ecosystems, the grasslands, for example, uh, you increasingly need to do it on purpose, and that's what we, I mean, promote with environmental funding, for example. But uh, it's it's still not happening to an extent that, let's say, at the European level, uh, is sufficient to stop the declines. And uh, yeah, we see all the a lot of butterfly species are extremely endangered nowadays. Also, the ground nesting birds of open habitats, um, and it's not it's not just predation; it's also the way farming is is being done. Uh, you know, the corn craig, uh, the curlew. I mean, there's examples like that all over Europe, where uh, let's say ground nesting birds are disappearing.
0: And also, I presume that all the aspects that you mentioned, with with uh, change of agricultural practices, let's call it this way, also impact the the predators the the abundance of the generalist predators who are otherwise wouldn't be uh, that that abundant is is that is that the trend that you see in the EU wide as well
1: yeah i think that's a fair point uh, predation is often uh, underestimated uh, in terms of impact on on a lot of in particular ground nesting birds and i think that the the point is that with increasing agricultural intensification and uh, for example on on grasslands uh, the hay making has largely been replaced by silage so the nutrient cycling is much faster there is more food there is more earthworms there is more rodents think about the vole densities in in grasslands so there is simply a, a much bigger carrying capacity for these uh, small predators than what used to be the case historically And all these foxes and stoats and weasels, and it is spread uh, through the countryside. And it's just the sheer number of predators that seems to be, in some cases at least, the main driver for declines. And if I might give a few examples, the blacktail godwit, despite all the conservation efforts, you see that predation is still one of the main causes of decline. Grouse species have disappeared over large parts of Europe curly in 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 ireland it's probably also a, a predation related effect i don't know about the concrete that's perhaps less uh, clear cut and um, i'm coming from an area where uh, it's a grassland area it's a dairy production area and uh, there was a shift like 30 years ago from hay making to silage making and uh, so the the vole density increased a lot. Uh, the foxes suddenly became more abundant. There was also the rabies vaccination. But then something interesting happened. The red kite arrived. You know, the red kite, this raptor, and it became suddenly very abundant. And it's now, it, it has an extremely high density in that area. And why is that? Well, because of the the high abundance of voles. Uh, so there is also winners there, huh? uh, uh, we, we now have a lot of red kites. We have a lot of, uh, the, the, the eagle owl is extremely common now. It's a really strange shadow. so. Uh, and some of the species that we thought were, or we were considering as extremely threatened and rare, like 10 20 or 20, 30 years ago, are now very abundant. And this, so there is also winners of this nutrient enrichment of a landscape, but unfortunately there is a lot of losers. And all the ground nesting birds, uh, the windshed, for example, uh, which used to be present in all the... It's gone. It's practically disappeared.
0: As, o- as always, there are, there are some, some that are winning, some that are losing. Okay, so we have this picture. It, it is not perfectly uh, optimistic or is like slightly pessimistic, I would say. So now let's jump into the topic of EU biodiversity strategy 2030. And, you know, there is a lot of these terms, Natura 2000s, there is uh, EU biodiversity strategy, there is a EU biodiversity plan, there is uh, birds and habitat directive, et cetera, et cetera. For the person, for our listeners, for the person who listens or watches this and says, like, I don't know any of that, what that's, all any of that means. Could you please lay out the basic contour of what EU biodiversity strategy is? How does it complement or plays a part of like a 30 by 30? And where does Natura 2000 fit into that? I understand that this is a huge question, but just a general contour and then we take it from there.
1: Okay, well, let me try. Well, first of all, Natura 2000. It's it's an existing network of protected areas. It's an EU-wide network that was established under the Birds and the Habitats Directive. And these are two quite old pieces of uh, European environmental, actually nature conservation legislation. The Birds Directive is from '79, and the Habitats Directive from '92. And they both had similar approaches. On one hand, they say certain species must be protected against direct persecution against catching uh, against collection etc and on the other hand they say we need to protect some areas of the highest value for biodiversity because we can't protect it all so at least the best areas should be protected against deterioration but they should also be uh, restored as far as possible so that these areas as a network huh, become really the the safety net of europe's biodiversity so that's the concept of Nature 2000 and uh, it, it's a network that was yeah, difficult to establish huh, because it also affects private lands uh, the approach was primarily scientific you look at what are the best occurrences for each of the species and habitats and then as a member state you propose these sites and then they become a european part of the european network it's currently about 27,000 individual sites um, all over the EU27. And uh, for the land territory, uh, they cover about 18.6% of the EU land area. And for the marine, about 9% of the marine area. So it's quite a, a, a a consistent network. It's very coherent because it's been established according to uh, common uh, guidelines and approaches that are in the directives. The, the perception was that what now we have we have uh, protected enough sites and uh, let's manage them appropriately, and then we will achieve our our uh, objectives, uh, uh, which is achieving favourable conservation status. But unfortunately. Um, what we have seen over the last decades is that the pressures on the sites are increasing the agriculture is becoming more intensive there is more and more urbanization there's more fragmentation and we have also seen that some of the sites that uh, we thought perhaps were of a sufficient size individually maybe 20 years ago are not properly functioning anymore they are too small in the in the in the in the face of these increasing pressures, I huh? think about pesticides, fertilisation, but also predation, huh? uh, as we just discussed, or uh, nitrogen emissions and things like that, and also the the fact that uh, the, the as the countryside is becoming increasingly intensively used, its its role as a corridor is is much less functional now than it used to be in the past. So there is a lot of issues there. So the question is, is the network sufficient? And I think that was one of the drivers of uh, some of the targets in the in the new EU biodiversity strategy, uh, which uh, was published by the Commission in twenty twenty, twenty nineteen, sorry. And the the message was there: yes, we have a good network of uh, protected areas with Nature Two Thousand. We also have some additional uh, sites that are protected under national legislation, but obviously. Even if we would manage these sites in a perfect way, it wouldn't be enough. So, to some extent, we would need to look at what, where do we need to do more in terms of is there a need to protect further areas? How intensively or how ambitiously should this protection be? And uh, I mean, there is a similar discussion in 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 the international for in CBD, for example, and uh, this idea of what CBD. The, Convention of biological diversity, and in the so there was this idea floating around that actually half of the Earth should be protected ideally, but it's probably not an, a very realistic uh, objective to be achieved. But let's at least try for 30%. So that that was the, the 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 origin of this target of 30 by 30, 30% by 2030, and this target was also taken up in the EU biodiversity strategy for 2030 uh, for the eu now in europe we have um we have this tradition of uh, when you look at protected areas uh, including Nature 2000, not everything is strictly protected uh, even in a protected area you can have areas that are subject to intensive land uses maybe at some stage in the future there will be there will be a possibility to convert them into something more natural but uh, it's not always the case. And so not everything that is in protected areas in Europe is actually protected.
0: I, I, noticed, I noticed that, that there are protected sites, but they're not designated for conservation. Or they're designated for conservation, but there are other higher priority land uses allowed on them. Or designation for conservation are... are... Still not counted as protected. So it was like, oh my god, like, huh, why, why is, why like, is either protected or not.
1: <laughs> I'm not talking about Nature 2000. Huh? There is a lot of other protected areas. Uh, there are nature reserves, some of which are very, let's say, strictly protected, fully dedicated to nature conservation in Europe. But then on the other end, you have what is called landscape protected areas, and a landscape protected area is generally a very large area, and. Just to give an example, in Germany, there is more than 40% of the land that is under some landscape protection area status. So if you would take the figures as they are reported by Germany, you would say Germany has already more than 40% of protected areas. But I think everybody, including the German uh, Federal Ministry for the Environment, would agree, well, that's not the way to go. It doesn't really make sense. And uh, out of a biodiversity strategy target... Com- came actually one of the recognitions was that we actually don't know how much land is protected in the EU. So we 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 still have a a problem of basic understanding how much of a land is actually really under some meaningful protection status, and this is something that we're currently trying to clarify with the member states, uh, and uh, which would require actually some adaptations on of the current reporting systems for. Protected areas, and in particular, other than those that are uh, in Nature 2000. So there is still, you know, and these were things that we were not really aware of uh, a few years ago. But in the discussions in the uh, that were triggered by the strategy, and we have these discussions in the frame of uh, biogeographical region level meetings with the member states, where we meet with a number of member states in a certain biogeographical region, discuss these issues. It became quite clear that we still have some some basic understanding issues, and it is only then when you understand that you know how much is still needed. Huh? And uh, are we are we now at twenty six point five percent as we were initially thinking in terms of protected area coverage, or is it only twenty percent? The reality is that we we are not sure yet.
0: Natura sure two thousand,
1: they're all protected. There is a basic level of legal protection for each Natura 2000 site, or there should be. It's not always the case, but uh, we are working towards that with the member states, of course. Uh, and that is one of our roles as uh, as European Commission. I'm working in the European Commission in the Nature Conservation Unit uh, to make sure that actually the requirements of a, of a Birds and Habitats Directive and of Natura 2000 are met by all the member states, including also in all the Natura 2000 sites. And this is not, Still not fully the case, but uh, there has been a lot of progress in this uh, in the last decade, I would say.
0: I couldn't find it uh, this, this for, for this podcast. I found it. It was like a blog by one of the people who works in, 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 the, e, in the EU and the European Commission, probably your colleague. Don't even remember the blog or one of the official sites. It was a couple of years ago when he said something like, the conservation is not enough. The conservation failed. Now we need to restore. And that was the very, very beginning of the nature restoration. So, is that is was that just a you know like a blog entry, or is it like a officially recognized the conservation you know quote unquote air quotes failed? We need to now restore, and this is where this uh, nature restoration plan came about. Because what I, what what I'm not clear is is Natura two thousand good and and we need to build on that? Or is it perception that Natural 2000 is not enough because of the different protection status and all that and we need something better than that?
1: Well, it's not one or the other, it's both. Uh, And I think what I mentioned so far was very much linked to the fact that not enough area is dedicated to conservation and we need more of it. It needs to be more coherent, we need bigger, more let's say, more consolidated sites, Uh, we need to connect them better, etc. But in addition, there is also an objective of of a better management of the existing site because a lot of sites are still not properly managed. But there is also, and that is something I haven't mentioned so far, there is also recognition that we have already transformed our landscapes to an extent that in some parts of Europe, it is not anymore enough to protect what is re, uh, what's remains. And therefore, we need to restore if we really want to achieve our uh, biodiversity targets. And indeed, this is the second big chapter of a biodiversity strategy. The first one is really the, the better protection, uh, the, uh, so the 30 by 30 target in the widest sense. And the second one is a, is to have a, a new nature restoration plan with a number of actions. Actually, there's 15 different targets in the strategy uh, which are linked to, uh, well, under this head of uh, restoration. And it was also in that frame uh, that uh, the commission proposed uh, a a nature restoration law uh, with a a number of very specific targets, including targets for species and habitats of the birds and habitats directive. Because in in the directives themselves, there is no deadline for achieving uh, favorable conservation so it just says you need to protect what is there and then all the rest you can do it uh, over time and uh i think which is an which is a fair approach and huh? uh, you use all the flexibilities and whenever you have funding you do it but unfortunately we see that there isn't much progress uh, the progress isn't there and i think that triggered the the perception that it's not just enough to say you, you protect what is there. You, we also need some inter, interim milestones that go towards yeah, certain levels of improvement and restoration.
0: So what are the, deba- the basic goals or targets of the EU restore, Nature Restoration Plan? So we know like 30, 30% of, of land land and sea or is like is it combined land and sea 30 percent or is it like land and sea separate like how does that work
1: i think th- there is always this uh, mixture between <laughs> unfortunately everything is 30 Adam. and and uh, when i i mean this 30 percent of land and sea areas protected that is the protected area targets so by 2030 30 percent of the eu land area and 30 percent of the eu sea area should have some meaningful level of protection. Now, at the same time, there is this idea that by 2030, 30 percent of a degraded ecosystems should be should have been restored. Now, that requires a, what is what is actually a degraded ecosystem. I think this is something that still needs to be uh, figured out by the member states. But yeah, indeed, there is this confusion then between all these 30, I think, I think the, the, this 30% is perhaps also something catchy, but I think it's good to have these interim milestones uh, towards, uh, let's say, a higher ambition over time. And the idea is also that by 2050, uh, most of what is needs to be restored should have been restored. So the 30% restoration by 2030 is the first milestone towards the... Uh, full achievement
0: and then it's like a 30 thir- another 30 by 50 okay okay got you <laughs> got gotcha and then there is also strict protection target yep. right 10 percent. let's talk about the strict protection what does it what does it mean because you know i i spoke uh, on the podcast a lot for example about mpas there was like a number of episodes about mpas and it's similar like with those protected sites uh i, I think was it was not sure at 2000, or maybe you, 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 you if I got you correctly, you, you kind of debunked that. But there is a protected area, but then there's other things are allowed there. So, for example, you have an MPA, but then you have a troller, you know, trolling <laughs> protected area. It's like, oh, how is it protected? <laughs> so, it, it, can you can you uh, elaborate on the? on this idea of strict protection. It's 10%, I think, land and sea. And is it designed to, well, uh, like my words, not yours, like inject a little bit of a reality into that protection. Because like, okay, we have a 30%, like where I'm sitting, it sounds like, oh, we have a 30% protected, but it's like protected, wink, wink. But 10% of that is like really protected, which is strict yes, protection. Actually,
1: it's, it's not just that. It's, you know, there is a lot of, situations where you can achieve some biodiversity outcome when you do let's say at the same time agricultural exploitation eh? there is a lot of win-wins with forestry with agriculture so in order to achieve good biodiversity outcomes you you do not always need to fully protect an area and in fact there is a lot of value in working for example with forests and forestry forest owners landowners farmers to do restoration on on forest and farmlands but at the same time some conservation outcomes can only be achieved nowadays when the land is fully dedicated to conservation so i think the idea of strict protection is the idea of having land that is fully dedicated to conservation it can still be used but the use should not be in a way that it is a compromise so on a 10% the primary objective would be conservation, and on the rest you can have some kind of, uh, you know, compromises or uh, between. For example, some level of fertilization might still be required in order to get uh, an agricultural, uh, a decent agricultural income, but at the same time, perhaps some restrictions in the mowing dates or things like that that would allow certain bird species to thrive on on the same land. So this idea of integration between conservation and land uh, and land use is in the in the concept of protection is enshrined in Europe it's very strong and given that this is not always working uh, you need something more ambitious and in the biodiversity strategy it was mentioned that it's it should also uh, it sh- should include all the remaining primary and old growth forests so this should uh, by default, be considered as something of the highest biodiversity value and therefore be strictly protected. But they would only cover probably one or two percent of the uh, EU land. We actually don't have uh, really uh, reliable figures uh, for the moment on this. Also, because the definition is not always clear and different member states use slightly different definitions, and you know, you can't compare a boreal forest with a Mediterranean one. There is a lot of reasons uh, why this is not easy and in the in the strategy there was uh, when when the concept of strict protection was introduced there was very much a focus on undisturbed areas uh, non-intervention areas where everything would be let, let's say no human activity would be allowed now when we discussed uh, this with the member states they say wait a moment uh, that's perhaps not always useful uh, there are cases where you need to actively manage the land to, uh, to achieve the, the conservation outcome. Think about grasslands. Uh, butterfly conservation requires some active grassland management nowadays in Europe. And therefore, when an area is really under active management but fully dedicated to the conservation purpose, that is also something that should count as strictly protected. So it's not just non-intervention like in the old-growth forests, um or or rewilding you know this concept of rewilding is is very popular Uh, you mentioned the r word (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of people think this is the only way to do strict protection and others think no strict protection is really about the butterflies let's say so i think we need a way to bring all these uh together and to find a way that um that is meaningful. That doesn't undermine the concept of strict protection, and at the same time delivers the highest biodiversity outcome. And I think our focus should always be on the outcome, on and that we should avoid any, let's say, dogmatic approaches or uh, uh, approaches that uh, would create too much discussion and dissent. And I mean, the, the fact that you raise this question—it's it, it, a question that comes back all the time. What is strict protection? And Despite the guidance that we have made, uh, it is clear that there is still a need for further clarification on this and we are, uh, it's coming back all the time we, in in the biogeographical seminars and we are now planning even a dedicated event on the definition of strict protection here in Brussels, uh, probably in the second half of the year.
0: Okay, okay, that's, that's, that's good to know. Yeah, you know, like on the strict protection, you know, I'm coming from the background as a hunter and angler and you know, I was like, yeah, it should be like strictly protected. No, nothing happened there, but then like, okay, but if it's like strictly protected and I can't even go there, it's like do I even care if it's, you know, so it's like this is this dichotomy here, which is very interesting. Uh, Frank, tell me, what I'm getting from what you said, like this is incredibly complex and complicated and there is like a whole plethora of challenges. Like I said, we don't even know what is actually protected and to what level and, and so on. Then on top of that, you overlay, this is, this is I'm just my brain up, right? Like On top of that, you overlay the e- European Commission, uh, a body that in my mind is incredibly bureaucratic and you have all those countries and they're all interests and everybody's pulling in their own direction and like, how on earth we have any chance to pull that off <laughs> that's
1: that's a complex question as a real trip. um no i
0: <laughs> no you know obviously this is like a start of a discussion yeah, yeah. like daily you know i can i get like oh hey frank what are the challenges but i think like this is goes down to like well how <laughs> no i i i mean
1: it's a, it's a it's a really important question how how to do this and i think um you know, you can't do it just with a carrot, with a stick, sorry. It's not, I mean, of course, we have uh, this role as the guardian of a treaties uh, as we say. We need to make sure that uh, every member state states respect the requirements of EU environmental legislation. But then in the biodiversity strategy, a lot of targets are voluntary. And it's not just, you know, it's not just a stick. Uh, it's also the idea of uh, we need to work together on this. Uh, we're all in the same boat And we want to create uh, this perception that we are a community, that we are all working together, Uh, 27 member states, very different cultures, different languages, uh, different perceptions of what is conservation sometimes. And we need to to find a way to bring it all together. And uh, so we spend a lot of time discussing and... uh, And we have, I think, as a European Union, we have developed a whole range of mechanisms over time to ensure that we we come to a consensus. And having a consensus is never ideal because you never make everybody happy. Uh, That's part of it. You need to find a compromise. And this is also in the discussions that we have here. Uh, For example, when we discuss on strict protection, I think we somehow need to find a compromise that is... Uh, uh, realistic, and I, I, I listen to your points on on the access to the land, which is actually one of the point that people discuss, uh, uh, and and is also it shows very much the difference between different parts of the EU. For example, when I, I'm here in Brussels, and we have a forest, and people are picking mushrooms. Now oh, there are so many people picking mushrooms that there would be no mushrooms left, and that's why the forest administration say no, it's not possible. In Finland, when people pick mushrooms and you would say, don't do it, they would say, are you crazy? So, because there is such a low density of people that it doesn't make any sense to to regulate mushroom picking. So, I think that's the kind of difficulties we are faced with. And that's why we we need to, uh, you know, we shouldn't regulate everything. I think there is a lot of things that shouldn't be regulated but sometimes you need to create a common baseline to make sure that we all have the same understanding that we all apply the same rules and the i think the tricky issue is we need to find where does it make sense and where should it be where should there be a regulatory approach and where are we better going with uh, voluntary approaches and a consensus building its it's a constant it's a constant discussion
0: i can imagine and then there is there's also i i heard about this concept burden sharing or or something like that there it was this this phrase to the to the point where some countries might have bigger areas that are either suitable or should be protected and therefore they have you know, larger burden, which to me like even, you know, considering nature restoration or protection in the in a category of burden is like, oh man, that's not good. But that that is the real problem, right? Like how you how you gonna share share this uh, burden? Here I say, yeah, it. which
1: which makes me think maybe we should replace the word burden by something more positive. Uh, you're right.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I'll take that idea. <laughs> Um <laughs> okay thank you thank you I'll take a credit if it's changed I'll take a credit
1: <laughs> I think you deserve it um but yeah I I mean that's that's an interesting example indeed uh in I mean we have countries that have a higher population density that are heavily industrialized and where it is probably totally impossible to achieve a 30% protected uh, area target or 10% and in others uh there is a lower density, uh, there is more space, um, there's perhaps more natural values, perhaps also more endemic species. Uh, some countries have a richer biodiversity than others. So considering all these aspects, it is clear that we can't really say everybody has to achieve the same target. But then, what everybody? What should everybody contribute? And that's uh, that's a very difficult question. And it's something that will keep us busy in the next... In the next years for sure now we have some um, scientific support huh? uh, we have a pro a, a big project under horizon it's called Natura connect and one of the tasks of that uh, big project uh, which with more than 20 different partners spread all over the EU a lot of universities and research bodies are working on biodiversity the purpose one of the purposes is to to see well what would be a meaningful share for each member state in in a, in a 30% protected area coverage. And you could say the same for 10%, huh? because uh, there might also be different opportunities for strict protection. And this is an ongoing work, uh, and I'm looking forward to the results. Of course, I think you can already anticipate that in some countries uh, there will be a higher opportunity. And by the way, this is already the case for Nature 2000. Huh? We We have... Two countries, um, Slovenia and Croatia, with nearly 40% Natura 2000 coverage, and uh, on the other hand, Denmark with 8% on land. Uh, so um, the same for the Netherlands, Belgium, huh? uh, highly populated countries with a lower coverage. So it is already some a, a reality in in Natura 2000, and it it will obviously be have to become a reality when we look at the 30% target. If we hopefully achieve it,
0: yeah, I'll, I'll hope so. I certainly hope so, Frank. A few of the like maybe like a smaller questions, but nevertheless important. What in the, in the, in in the whole in this whole picture of biodiversity strategy and and protecting land, what role are playing the private landowners, people who you know want to rewild their farm or you know some some other uh, you know private equities, let's say. Is it meaningful, important role? Is it just a drop in the ocean?
1: Well, that's another interesting discussion. And I think that it is perhaps an underestimated field and there is an untapped potential in terms of working with private landowners. And many of them actually say, well, if we have the right incentives, uh, we would actually like to engage into, into more conservation on our land but then very often they are afraid about the legal protection. They say, okay, as, as, it, as long as it's voluntary uh, and we could theoretically or potentially step out at some time in the future, uh, we are willing to engage. Or sometimes they are even willing to engage into longer-term perspectives. But then, of course, they, they would like to have, a let's say, a financial compensation uh, generally or at least a, a strong recognition uh, of what they are doing. So every person is, of course, different in terms of expectation, we are looking into these questions and in particular uh, what we call private land conservation uh, and and what kind of mechanisms uh, could be used uh, to bring private landowners on board. And uh, there are some interesting examples, including on other continents. Uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, in North America, the system of easements is very much a system that is in place and that delivers uh, some interesting conservation outcomes without the legal protection. So, the question is can we translate that into, into the EU? There are also already some uh, member states and regions in the EU that have something like uh, an easement system. Uh, Catalonia is a good example in, in Spain. They have their own uh, system of easements. So, an easement, what it, does it mean? It is basically, it's a contractually fixed agreement according to which a landowner would abandon certain rights against uh, a certain, let's say, a compensation, but would remain the owner of a land and the land would not be legally protected. So, uh, this could be, for example, well, I agree that on my land there is more deadwood huh? or I I let more Old tree standing. I engage into into a more nature-minded farming way on my land. Uh, so these systems are ter- are possible and uh, they exist, but uh, s- somehow it doesn't really get off the ground. And perhaps this is also because of the strong tradition that we have in Europe with protected areas. So uh, maybe it's it's cultural. Uh, we are looking into this. We have some projects um, under life that. We have asked to look at these issues, and more recently, uh, I think there was this broader concept, uh, again coming from the Convention of Biological Diversity, the international uh, dimension of OECMs, other effective conserva- uh, area-based conservation measures, and I think this idea of working with landowners, the private land conservation, is a good example of an OECM, huh? something that is not a legally protected area, but nevertheless delivers conservation outcomes. And in the biodiversity strategy, we also mentioned that OECMs could also count for the 30% target.
0: You mentioned OECMs and that you're ahead of the curve because that was my next question about the OECMs. So in other words, this this is everything in category of other that can still be counted towards the, the 30% yeah, attention. actually,
1: OECM is a bit of a negative uh, definition because it's a, it's not a protected area; it's something else. But then, what it is, that is left very much open. Apparently, the concept was originally meant to focus on areas of indigenous people. I eh? think about the rainforest tribes and things like that. But uh, uh, but then, over time, there was a recognition that perhaps there is much more behind it, and we should look at different or a wider definition of OECMs. Uh, but it, it's it's very. I think it's very difficult to to define it. But it's perhaps possible to define a number of cases that fall into into this large definition of OACMs.
0: We are six years away, right? Twenty thirty. We are twenty twenty four. How does it how does it look? Are we are we on track? Are we behind? Are, are we are we ahead?
1: <laughs> I think we are. Objectively speaking, we are behind. But then a lot of things need a lot of preparation and then you s- will often see that things are speeding up over time. Now, as the targets are to some extent voluntary, I'm not sure that the speeding up will take place. I, I think it will be very difficult to achieve 30% protected area coverage and 10% strict protected area coverage by 2030. But we'll see, we see that some member states are really going into the system. They they have uh, taken the idea and uh, are currently working on, on their protected areas, are increasing the coverage of nature reserves for example. There is still some additional Natura 2000 designations but unfortunately that's not the case everywhere. Uh, some countries are much more conservative. There's also political differences of course huh? and uh, not the idea of more strictly pro- more more protected areas is not uh, let's say achieved or uh, received in the same way in in all the countries. So we are also counting a bit on the on the let's say on the positive competition between the member states, and uh, and this is one of the things that we we try to do when we bring them together uh, to look at good practices and to see to what extent they could also be applied elsewhere. But in the end, we we are we are just a moderator and we can only show what is possible and uh, and show the good cases and hope that they will follow.
0: If we consider that that you know someone listens to this episode just a just a citizen who can vote <laughs> what would be your advice like the, like on on the more practical note you know like more uh, and I'm by the way I'm not asking you know who to vote for but in general what you what what can citizen of the European Union of a member state of the European Union do to help in in practical terms is it just voting for the correct option or is it taking part in seminars or is it like what would they, like is is there any sense of agency for people who would like to see nature restored
1: well voting is of course one thing, uh, and maybe different political parties may have different approaches to that. Some might certainly be more open, uh, some less. Uh, So, okay, I can't really say (laughs) who you should vote for, but uh, I think it's not just politics. It's also personal engagement. And there is a lot of possibilities to become engaged as an individual. In many countries, there is strong conservation NGOs. uh, So, Sometimes it's useful to, to become a member to support uh, their their ideas. Some are themselves managing protected areas. Uh, so people can, sometimes in some countries, people have the possibility to become actively involved in, in, in the management of protected areas as volunteers. Sometimes they might even get a, a, a role as a, as a protected area manager. So this depends, of course, on the countries. Um there is, I think, there is many ways of getting, uh, many different ways of getting engaged. Uh, also, as a citizen scientist, there is increasingly the possibility to to record your data. There is citizen science portals where you can provide your observation, and data are important. Are important for conservation. Uh, they give us information about the distribution of species, uh, about possibly about the identification of areas of higher biodiversity values that are currently not protected. Um, and this is a field that I would hope is also creating a lot. You know, um, people are living increasingly in the houses and I don't know how it was for you, but we t- we tend to play outside. Our children, they stay at home. They play video games. <laughs> and I think we need to find ways to bring them out out, out into the nature. That show
0: is called Tommy's Outdoors for a reason, Frank. That's
1: (laughs) yeah. So yeah, it's it's. um, I think it's it's a real challenge uh, to 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 sensitise the the young generations to the beauty and the importance of nature. Uh, But I think it's also immensely rewarding uh, to bring them outside, and sometimes you need to force them, but. It's it's amazing. In each generation, there are always young people who become extremely, uh, you know, they they take the subject uh, and they become scientists or naturalists. Um, they develop their knowledge, and I think we we need to we need to create new dedications in the younger generations also, because uh, if the knowledge is lost and the sensibility is lost, uh, nature conservation will be will be lost. And uh, it's all about how people, how important people think conservation is. Of course, you can see very often that it's about, uh, you know, the the big fluffy species, everybody likes the Iberian lynx, or the the brown bear also, despite that it's a dangerous predator sometimes. But there is this species that everybody loves. There is also increasingly the perception that we have an insect crisis, that that was, uh, you know, the debate on the pollinators. Uh, I think that has shown really that people also understand that it's not just about, you know, the emotional, the fluffy animals. It's also about our uh, the the basis of our survival to some extent.
0: All the but worms still, and th- creepy crawlies.
1: <laughs> but still, I think I think the, the the biggest access to nature is about emotions, and people need to uh, we need to to offer the opportunity for young people to get to the emotional side of nature
0: 100 percent.
1: and i think that's that's really something we should work off on uh, uh very much so i think the I mean, political engagement children sensitization citizen science i certainly forgot a lot of other things but i think these are a few elements that i would mention is of the highest importance
0: these are wise words frank and like turn out like uh you know unexpected we get into the emotional uh, aspect of it and but it's 100% right it's 100% right listen thank you so much for your time uh and thank you for clarifying all those terms i wish you and and all your team uh all the very best in your work so you hopefully you know maybe like 28% by 2030 <laughs> that'll, that'll,
1: that'll
0: be, be 29.9 yes yes, yes, we'll fingers it. crossed Frank thank you so much
1: Tommy thank you for so much for this interesting podcast and I will keep on listening to you thank you very much thank you
0: thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast please leave me 5 star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast this is great help for me and for the podcast and while you're already there Don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.